Before we begin, just to let you guys know, our logo artwork was designed by Nicole Anarchy and music by Taylor Paisley French. Warning, this podcast does contain spoilers for the Verse series. Hello everyone and welcome to the Best Damn Camp, our Odenverse read-along and analysis podcast that sets out to read all the books by Rick Riordan in timeline order. I'm your host Fran and welcome back to the show. Today we continue our timeline journey with the next chapters of The Sea of Monsters. Chapter 11, Clarice Blows Up Everything. And Chapter 12, we check in to CeCe's Spa and Resort. Again, as I'm doing with most episodes now, I want to put a PSA here to say that, uh, oh, I've forgotten the word entirely then briefly, all information and uh, um, things that you sign, uh, petitions, oh my god, petitions and all these sort of things to help support the Black Lives Matter movement and the trans community are in the episode show notes, so go check those out if you can help the movements as best as possible and keep talking about it as much as you can because we are fighting for change and we all have to fight together. But to carry on to get a small bit of escapism in the midst of all this protesting and all the support for equality, I am going to carry on with this podcast and talk about the things that I love doing which is Rick Riordan's world. And for these chapters, as always, I've my points to focus on. So today we've got characters, gods, story, and generally what I thought of it. But to begin, here's the synopsis. With sexist zombies and rivalry galore, how could we not end up with an exploding boat, a loss of a loved one, followed by the figure of the century who represents every targeted dieting and so-called self-care ads and parental figures in everyone's lives and a need for the RSPCA or PETA in the US to be called for guinea pig mistreatment. Oh, and Percy controls boats now. Cool. And that's basically the synopsis for these two chapters and if you can't tell it's it's a pretty weird, weird bunch. There's a lot that happens, and then at the same time, not not a lot happens. I think is basically what's got to be said here. Um, and like, it's there's not a bad collection of chapters. I I won't say that. And admittedly, some of them are pretty good, and the information that we do get in them is useful, and it it ties into what happens in the later part of this book, and even in future. But there definitely are a few things that I'm going to have some issues with, which I will get to when we get to that part. So let's move on to that element because we start, of course, with chapter 11, Clarice blows up everything. And you guys know I love my girl Clarice. So let's start with the overview for this chapter. Clarice is ruling this ship of zombies, even if these zombies suck. 
She is alone though, which is surprising and sad all the same. Including bad news from the Oracle, she is not having a good time, as much as she tries to act like she is. Oh gods, new nightmares of Grover, and shocking, this isn't going to be easy. And also, Ares is abusive to Clarice and a sexist. I shouldn't be saying his name because this is Pantheon Gods, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, no one likes Clarice's plan, and honestly, it ain't great, but neither option was great either, so rock in a hard place, mate. You know, let her do what she gonna do. As Packard from Atlantis the Lost Hero says, we're all gonna die. I feel like I should have inserted her actual voice. If I can do that, I'll do that. But I'm not very technically challenged, so it probably won't happen. And oh god, Tyson. No, no, Tyson, I can't believe it. And that is the overview for chapter 11. And if you can't tell, it doesn't end well for Tyson, sadly. Uh, which is then confirmed in the follow-up chapter. And, yeah, so this chapter is, there's a lot that happens in this, and th there's so much to unpack here. But the two things I'm going to focus on for this chapter in particular is gods and characters. I'll talk a little bit about story, but honestly, there isn't that much story to talk about here. Um... And just because none of what kind of actually happens in this chapter is of current significance, um, other than the dream about Grover, but even then, it, all it is is just a timeline, um, like the shortening of the timeline, like we usually get. So the gods thing that I really want to talk about is the fact that Ares is an abuser and sexist. And the fact that I kind of really don't understand it. Like, Ares, I get him being a bad guy in the first book, because the whole thing is he's being manipulated by Luke and Kronos. But in this, his attitude and the fact that he raises his hand to Clarice and such like that, and I guess, quick warning here, just for anyone who may uh, uh, find discussions like this triggering, there will be slight discussions of, of abuse, but not too detailed. Um, but thought best to put a warning just in case. But the thing that I don't get is, why is he being portrayed as abusive and sexist? It just doesn't really make any sense. Firstly, from the things that we do get in the Greek gods book. Like, Ares literally created and supported the Amazons. You know, the female warrior race who saw, who had men as their subservience. Like, okay I know the whole thing it sounds I know it's a thing like yes you can create and support powerful women it doesn't mean that you are that you can't be a sexist like I know that's a thing but still it just doesn't make any sense like if he became the patron for the Amazons and loved the fact that he was a patron for the Amazons because they represented a lot of what he represented and also kind of things that we know about him in later books and just stuff like that. I just don't understand why is he a sexist all of a sudden. It doesn't make any sense. And then also I just can't, I, just in general, I kind of resent this just a little bit. Again, due to the rest of the other stories that we do know of Ares. Like, yes, he is the god of war. 
But why does this tie him to this vision of and action of like abusive dad elements? Like I mentioned with the Greek gods book, we we did I mention the Greek gods book? If I didn't, I'm mentioning it now. As we learn in that book, he was fiercely protective of his children, even killing, I think it was a child of Poseidon actually as well, and like being put on trial for it, because that child of Poseidon assaulted his child, his daughter. And again, yes, I know, just because like he's protecting his daughter doesn't mean he can't not be a sexist still, but like the whole thing is just, we've seen him being a protective person of his children, and not viewing women as lesser so i don't know why he's suddenly doing that and why he's being abusive now i just i just it really doesn't it doesn't make sense with what we know of him like yeah he's a he's a douche but again it just it really doesn't make any sense there's no logic behind this choosing of him suddenly being an abusive person well god to his children and being basically saying oh I should have had one of my sons come do it because they would know what to do or something like that it just it's so stupid and it feels really bad to say this and basically this is what basically came to my head but this scene just feels like it's meant to be a moment to show a different and sad side to Clarice's story which I'm really not a fan of it's, it's something that is unfortunately a really really common trope back in the time when this book was written but even now of women who are victims in some form based on a particular event in their past or their present that leads to them becoming a badass or it it it's what drives them to be who they are as a person and I, there, there are so many characters like that we've got like Arya Stark we've got admittedly Sansa Stark as well in the last one for Game of Thrones references um, I can't think of any other references at the moment. Those are the only ones that suddenly popped into my head. But things like that, they're just... Why does she have to have this, like, him being abusive and non-believing in her for her to have this sort of edge to her character and for her to be so desperate to actually complete this quest and do this quest to prove this to her father? Like, you don't need to make him abusive for that to be a thing. Like... Annabeth is like that with her mum and her mum isn't abusive same with Percy and just, it, there is, I just don't understand the logic behind it so if anyone can explain why this may have been the case I'd appreciate it but based on the stories that we do have of Ares like him being very closely connected to the Amazon warriors the fact that he protected his child and avenged his children due to the actions taken against them and stuff like that I just I feel like it just there's I just don't understand it I know I'm repeating myself a lot about the fact that I don't understand it but I don't and it's annoying um I'm going to go on to Clarice though in terms of characters like I said while I'm not the happiest with the portrayal of the Aries and Clarice relationship I am happy with Clarice's character in this chapter overall we're basically getting this introduction of depth to her and her character which like I am all for because it's it's just really interesting considering we knew her in the first book as just this bully character and that was it that was all she is <laughs> and now we're seeing her in this different light or at least I am in every new reread that I have I see 
a different side to Clarice. Percy doesn't, but Percy is a very biased person, and once he has an opinion of someone, it's really not going to change. Except for some other some cases later on, but I will talk about that when we come to it. But what's interesting about her in this chapter is that she has fully taken this quest alone. Firstly, because no one wanted to come, which honestly is sad in itself that people have allowed this child slash teenager to go on a dangerous quest alone. Secondly, because she wants to prove herself because she feels like she's letting her father down, which is something very common to demigod children that they feel they need to prove themselves to their parents as discussed in the previous episode with with Luke and Percy but also just in general like she she's not well she's just a really I don't I don't know why I'm stuttering everything about that we're seeing about this is in this moment of her coming alone but also her thirst to really prove herself just shows her loyalty as a character and also to me, but like we get the mention of a spy in the previous chapters. This moment here for me is evidentiary proof that there is no chance that Clarice could be a spy. Her dad can be a butt, but the fact that she doesn't rat out her fellow campers or anyone because of what happened and the fact that no one actually came on this quest with her because they themselves were scared and the fact that she is scared as well but even then she's not rushing them out or feeling petty and angry at them because of it, shows how loyal she is to them and how understanding she is of them as well, which really shows her in a different light that no matter what other people do, she is still loyal to a fault. And also, like I said, she is afraid. And quite rightly, she should be. She is in an incredibly dangerous quest by herself and while she tries not to show it we can see that she is okay the <laughs> you guys are seeing it a lot recently the Clarice Stan is coming out here with me I am kind of annoyed with Annabeth and Percy in this chapter and kind of the following chapter as well in that neither Annabeth or Percy actually try to support her in this moment or anything like they know that she's here alone she's she knows that no one was willing to come Percy even makes fun of that fact and not be concerned that she came by herself anyway same with Annabeth and all they're basically doing and saying is hey you're you're being used which is someone who is from a cabin like Ares that no one actually likes except for the war games when they want them on their sides because of the fact that they are good warriors. She also clearly overcompensates her anger and her attitude just in general to kind of, I'd say kind of be like a shield to protect herself in a form. But to be told that you're being used and basically you aren't going to live, to live, you're going to die, you aren't good enough. It really does make sense why she is really defensive in this chapter and slightly reckless as well. And why she is just generally defensive and reckless in this series. She is so desperate to prove herself to her father, to herself, to the camp, to her cabin, 
to so many people, even if she's trying to show that she isn't trying to prove herself, that is clearly what she is doing. The Ares cabin has such a they're basically this the slithering of Camp Half-Blood. No one likes the Ares cabin because of Ares and because they're they're gruff and they're angry and I think they've been described as like smelly and angry kids and stuff like that. And I'm like, you are all kids who have been labelled troublemakers and kicked out of schools and stuff like that. And then you're oh, what's the term? Um um you are Oh no, I can't think of the right word. Um, I don't want to say, ostracizing isn't the word that I want to use. Um, they're be, that's the word I'm going to have to go with. They're ostracizing this cabin because they're a lot different to they are, because they are more gruff, they're more aggressive and things like that. So it's more against this image, even though everyone is like that. They just have it a little bit more intensely. I don't know, I just, I really kind of understand her and the Aries cabin a little bit more in these moments. I don't know if it's because I overanalyze a hell of a lot, but it just, I understand why she is defensive and why she's concerned that they are going to, well, they aren't doing exactly what she knew and was concerned they were going to do. They're trying to take over this quest. Firstly, because they believe Clarice can't do it, which she knows that's what they think. And secondly, because they believe that they're the better ones to do it. And again, Clarice clearly knows that that's what they are thinking. Because she said it at the camp as well. Like, every, like everyone was saying it, so that's going to be in Clarice's mind too. And yes, okay, her plan later in terms of getting through the Sea of Monsters is so stupid. But like we said, not only was both decisions really bad to do... In general, no one expects anything of her. So she's going to go all out and try her best for it all, to try and prove something. And I know that that is a really dangerous thing to do, especially for a heroic character, trying to prove themselves as best as possible, because it can put themselves in a dangerous situation purposefully, which is kind of what Clarice does. But again, taking everything that we kind of know and can summarize of who she is as a character, it does make sense why she is like this. But to move on from my Clarice Stan moments, I want to talk a little bit about our angel boy, Tyson. Because, oh my god, Tyson is gone. Like, he's gone. He's in, in the boiler room, he is being blown up, he possibly, well, god, that's a horrible way to go. But what I really want to talk about with his character is that he really does step up here. From everything that I have been saying before about him feeling like he really, he kind of shouldn't really be there, this moment where he goes below deck when he knows it's dangerous to try and fix the engines, to try and fix things to help save everyone, it shows that he does understand what is going on and is willing to risk it all for his brother and his friends because he loves them. And this chapter really does showcase not only Tyson's skills as an engineer and creator, but also his capacity for love as a whole. Now, we know he's a loving person. We've met him throughout this whole book. He's a really loving, emotionally connected person. 
and like we love him for it and it's just a, it's such an endearing element about him as a character but this love is now showing that he goes above and beyond for those he cares about to protect and keep them safe even though he knows Percy and most people would rather he was kind of gone Percy even says it in the following chapter that all he can think about is all the horrible things he thought or said to others about Tyson and even Tyson in a previous couple of chapters ago now was upset that he was a monster and he he was sad to think that Percy was angry and things like that and it's just really sad and just to see this that no matter what he does know what these guys do think of him he's still willing to do this does it kind of still justify him being on the quest honestly I'm not really going to change my opinion about that I do feel like it doesn't make sense that he's on this quest but how this ends I think makes so much sense for who he is as a character and a person even if it is devastating and that is the end for chapter 11 which ends on a very sad note of Percy being exploded off the ship, Percy being inside that ship, no, Tyson being inside that ship, and then Annabeth and Clarice, we don't actually know what's happened to them until the subsequent chapter, which is chapter 12. We check in to CC Spa and Resort. And to have the overview for this chapter, here it is. The reflections of Tyson. Hints of the prophecy are revealed, but disrupted by plot. Magic Island equals... Remember the Lotus Casino, you dummies? Nope. Oh, okay then. Great. Introducing the beautiful Cece, the queen of self-doubt and making you feel inadequate and hate yourself. Sounds like a... Nope. Sounds like the bullies I used to know in school. And the celebrity advertisements of diets. No, I'm going to just cut that hole out. With guinea pig kind of murder and Annabeth makeover, the sorceress Cersei is unmasked. Vitamins really do make a difference. Take notes, kids. Pirates are free. Now I'm concerned. But hey, at least our main hero's escaped. Oh, and Percy can man a 50-man usage ship, but solo. Neat. And that's kind of the overview. This was a really hard overview to write, because it really did feel like, well, a lot happened. Nothing happened in this chapter. I think this is uh, the main thing that I do have a problem with this, is just, it just just it feels like nothing of importance happened just like what I say about a few chapters here and there about these things is that you can tell when some chapters are added specifically to include Greek mythology or just to extend the story itself and I think this is one of them unfortunately um this is the total aside that I do want to get in um before I'm going to the actual breakdown um where is Clarice and why isn't she with them and this is again I know I'm a huge Clarice stan but I really don't understand like why separate them at this point it would have been 
I thought this would have been a great moment to develop this friendship and relationship. Have the three of them end up in this boat together, end up on the island, and then end up all going to save Grover and all these sort of things together. Why do this separately? It just... I think it would have been a great moment because, like, Percy is so prejudiced against Clarice due to his initial experience, which, you know, completely, again, fair enough. But as we've seen in this book, she is very different. Yeah, she's still hard-headed, but is she, she's still different. And I feel if they work together and they banded together for this quest, it would have been really cool and it would have helped develop this relationship and this friendship and probably change a few things later down the road in some books but it would have strengthened that relationship for certain things that do happen later on as well I think it'd be really interesting to have that dynamic um I think it's just a really unfortunate missed opportunity for that to not have happened here um but yeah I know Clarice Stan but I think that's something that should should have happened I want to do this as a question of the episode but I do I'm going to end up doing too many Clarice related ones so I won't do that for today's one but just for a general thing if you guys want to email in and say how you feel about this idea of Clarice actually have been with them from the moment the boat exploded and from this moment on be with them on this quest how would you feel about that and how do you think that would go for this book and subsequent books and also do you want me to make a video about this on my youtube channel because now i kind of want to but anyway let's carry on so i think the thing that i really want to talk about with this chapter is the story because okay i get why this chapter is important but like i said it also feels so insignificant at the same time the whole chapter is basically we need a ship so random battle slash trouble scenario to get a boat that's kind of it that that's really all this chapter is it's all about getting a boat but then it's the, the actual point of the chapter isn't to get a boat they just kind of happen to be on an island and then need a boat it's just uh. the only thing that is of significance in this chapter is the prophecy and while i while i know we aren't meant to get the whole prophecy yet and even annabeth actually says in this chapter she doesn't know the whole thing it is the best setup for the later books as well as the final part of this book itself and the implications behind it but it just it's only in there for like a i think two three pages well it's really only kind of two pages really because the first yeah so probably about two pages it's in discussion but it just, I feel this whole chapter kind of should have had a bit more significance than anything else. And really, the, I don't know, if we had them on a boat that was usable to get them to the island or something, or I don't know how they could have done it. It would probably have to have led to the previous chapter being different um, or the the boats that they escape on being different as well. Um, I don't know what life rafts are like or life boats or because it sounds like they're like in a rowboat sort of thing but then they also have a sail so I'm kind of confused as to what kind of boat it is in general but for this to be more of a focus on the prophecy and maybe them rowing or sailing to uh, 
God, what's his name? The 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 Cyclops. Uh, no, I was going to say Prometheus. That's not it. Polyphemus, I think, is the name. Um, the sail there in that boat instead of getting a, another big one for random reasons. I don't know. I just feel like it. This chapter could have been done a little bit better. Like, if you want to get a boat, don't destroy the first one. I don't know. But the prophecy is the only, again, the only thing of significance in this chapter because it's added. It adds to the law of the mythology world and to the story, but it also adds the mystery on the ban on the big three and why Percy is so significant. Because now we kind of understand it and understand why this ban was so desperately needed. Because a child of sixteen will either be the reckoning of or the saviour of Olympus and the gods so that's why Percy is such a significant character and why gods are kind of afraid but also hopeful for him to kind of be that saviour instead and it even expands a little bit on Poseidon's comment in the last book on why it would have been easy if Percy weren't born because in reality it is like as we see with Talia they assumed she was going to be this child of the prophecy but she dies before that's able to happen and it's not you can't really tell if that's a good or a bad thing the fact that she died before this prophecy came to be and the same situation is going on with Percy now like some gods as even Annabeth says probably do want him dead because of this power he technically holds over Olympus even though they don't know what this choice is going to be or what decision he's going to make on whether or not that saves or destroys Olympus he's a wild card and that's the scary part and I like that we're learning more about this and I kind of I I wish this was slightly more expanded on and this whole Circe or Cece's Island didn't happen just because it feels really bland and it just it I just don't understand the the point of it really because there isn't one other than having this moment of expanding on Percy's self-doubt self yeah self-doubt and sense of inadequacy and such but we're already getting a lot of this in the book already we had it pretty much with the previous chapters of Luke knowing Percy's weaknesses so we've already seen and gotten that so now it just feels a bit much and on the nose which is unfortunate because before it was subtle enough to pick up on whereas here we're literally getting a scene of Cersei having Percy look into a mirror and seeing his literal perfect image self and saying look this is what you want to be I know what you want feel inadequate feel inadequate feel inadequate this is what you could be be stupid drink this blah 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 like it's so on the nose on his sense of inadequacy as a person that he does have and that everyone has whereas every other time you've had this it doesn't it just feels so much more subtle and it's more interesting that way whereas this it's literally saying oh yeah I know I'm inadequate I feel inadequate like I think they use that actual phrase somewhere I don't know but I don't know I think it just feels slightly lazy in writing um, which is unfortunate in this case and again I also understand why this scene is here to help connect this this story to 
the Jason and the Argonauts journey because this is what this book itself is kind of meant to reflect is that journey but as a whole similar to the Lotus Casino and Krusty's bedroom emporium thing of the first book it just feels like an insert for Greek mythology without actually having any depth or significance to the story itself other than getting them a boat which I feel they could have done it another way and I don't know it's just it's I think it's frustrating because this chapter slowed everything down so much from what we experienced in chapter 11 chapter 12 just feels so slowed down because of this another battle like we had a battle in the in chapter 11 with the sea of monsters and getting into the sea of monsters and now we've got a, another ish one here it's just it's a lot like one after another it's just it's too much and again we're not really getting anything here other than little bits of character of kind of basically what i mentioned of getting more of percy's sense of inadequacy but then also a little bit about annabeth as well and how she has things that she kind of wants to improve about herself also um and everyone like the whole thing is is mentioned that everyone does have things that they they would think about oh i would like this to be different i would like that to be different everyone does have that and unfortunately cersei does exploit that in this which you know love yourself guys love yourself learn to love yourself i'm still getting there and i'm 24 nearly 25 this year but you know big message here just want to put that out as a psa learn to love yourselves but other than this moment that they have with the prophecy this chapter just you don't you really don't get anything about them there's no character moments really except um percy saying she didn't look like herself he he didn't like it because she didn't look like herself she looked beautiful but she didn't look particularly comfortable because she didn't and she just didn't look like annabeth and i like that because he's saying basically you know she's perfect how she is which i like but again that's just a small little thing that doesn't add anything to the story or to the characters or to the journey there's just this chapter again other than the prophecy doesn't add anything to our story and it's really frustrating because every chapter and element of story should really drive things forward it's sort of like a pacing thing i feel this chapter really stunts the pacing of the story and if you guys don't know what i mean by pacing it's basically the flow of the story this one like like what i talk about with exposition dumps where we get them here and there and it sort of drags out the story because it's so expositiony and it kind of takes you out of the world of magic and mystery it's similar to that in a way because that would be a real slowing down of the pacing because it's all just giving us the information but if you guys do want to know more of about pacing um i highly recommend hello future me's uh on writing and world building episode on well video on pacing and i'll let, link that in the episode notes as well because there's a really really good video um and helped me understanding my pacing as well which considering i did a university degree in creative writing you think i would know that but um dyslexia and dyspraxia it gets you no matter what your degree is <laughs> um I think that's kind of all I've got to say that like I said there wasn't really much else to talk about with with chapter 12 which is unfortunate 
and okay I'm actually going to go back to this because I know I said that I'm intrigued about you guys' thoughts on if Clarice joined Annabeth and Percy from this moment and I think it would have been so so much interesting if she did not only because it would help develop this trio's friendship slash relationship but it would have had so much more of an impact on the later books I don't want to spoil anything here because obviously I'm trying to keep everything as non-spoiler as possible but for anyone who does know elements to do with The Last Olympian and Battle of the Labyrinth a little bit as well I think having Percy and Clarice get onto a more even ground and be in a more friendlier position would have changed so many elements of that and I think it's um okay I, I keep using Harry Potter references but this is the first thing that's popping into my head there's a, tum- a fantastic tumblr post about how instead of Cedric's the guy I can't remember I think it was Warrington something I think there may have been his name who was a member of Slytherin House who put his name in for the Goblet of Fire and how if he was chosen that would have changed everything about the Harry Potter series and would have been so much better because he would have been hated by everyone because he's a Slytherin we can't believe we've got Slytherin representing us but then him helping Harry Harry helping him him then being killed by by Voldemort instead and showing to the Slytherins it doesn't matter if you're a pure blood if you're in his way he's going to kill you so it'd be Slytherins then joining them for the Battle of Hogwarts and it would have just changed so much and would have been so much better than what the books actually did where Slytherin are just evil to a fault which is the stupidest thing in world building and writing and society studies in writing as a whole but I don't want to get into a run about that because I could go about that for ages. But anyway, that's kind of what I think this relationship would be. Like Clarice, slight spoiler, not really, is continued to be viewed in a really negative light for the majority of the books, except for small humanising things, which are shown in a way similar to what I mentioned about the Aries is an abusive dad image. Now they're small little humanising moments that are that are hidden but are always relating to a certain relationship to a person in a certain frame so we've got a victimizing element and later on slight spoiler a romanticizing element to really big tropey things that i'm not a fan of i think if they built on this relationship by having them go on this quest together at this point would have fixed that so much more and would have made Clarice more of an interesting character and kind of going a little bit to the future as well Heroes of Olympus Mm, maybe I should do a bonus episode you know what actually I'm going to stop because I don't want to go too much but I'm going to 100% do a video relating this on my YouTube channel so to kind of teeter off slightly because I've gone onto a tangent Chapter 11, chapter 12. Chapter 11, really good, really interesting. Chapter 12, eh, average. But as a whole, really interesting chapters. Not the most engaging, but I'm not too fussed, so to speak. But they definitely could have been better in terms of engagement. Um, For this week's question of the episode, I'm intrigued. Did you guys expect Tyson to die in this book? I know it's sort of a spoilery based question for anyone who hasn't read this book but uh, 
I'm intrigued. Like, did you expect that to happen? How did you feel when it did? Let me know, obviously, on our social media email in. Um, I'm intrigued to hear hear your thoughts. Um, I want to thank you guys for joining me today, though, for chapters 11 and 12 of The Sea of Monsters. Be sure to join me next Wednesday as we continue our Riordanverse journey. To plug where you can find our podcast, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where please leave a rating and a review, Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Deezer. In the meantime, between episodes, you can find the Best Damn Camp on various social media at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Tumblr at thebestdamncamp.tumblr.com. If you want to email me with your own thoughts, you can email thebestdamncamp at hotmail.com, and I will read it out at the end of the show. If you want to support me making this content, check me out on Patreon at A Healthy Dose of Fran. And to the videos that I will definitely be doing in the future at some point, be sure to check out my YouTube channel A Healthy Dose of Fran for more Percy Jackson and Clarice LaRue stunning content. And drop me a follow at A Healthy Dose of Fran on Instagram and at A Dose of Fran on Twitter. Again, thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I've been Fran, your very own hunter. And I will see slash speak to you guys next time. Toodles.